This is a Diet of Brussels. It's been six months since Article 50 uh, was triggered by Theresa May uh, back in March, and it's probably a good point to just uh, take stock of where we are with this process. What I want to do in this episode is just think a little bit about what's changed, what hasn't changed, and where we might be heading. The most obvious thing that's happened is that the process has, broadly speaking, worked. Uh, Both the EU and the UK have accepted that Article 50 is the appropriate forum in which to resolve the outstanding uh, details before the UK leaves. There hasn't really been any serious challenge to that. We've occasionally got British officials and uh, uh, ministers going off to have uh, meetings with European counterparts, but nothing that's really uh, made any serious uh, change. And uh, that's uh, including the the current uh, meeting that's happening in Tallinn, uh, where Theresa May is having assorted bilateral meetings. So that system stands up and we can see that not just in the acceptance of the process but the fact that the process has proceeded as we uh, had thought it would. The uh, Commission had put forward a proposal to the European Council back uh, in the days following the uh, official notification. The Council, uh, European Council had issued a mandate to the Commission and the Commission has followed that through. So it's presumed produced negotiation uh, position papers, it's uh, arranged a schedule of meetings and we've just finished round four of those meetings and the system is uh, moving along uh, as planned. Now that's important to mention because we, we, we tend to kind of get lost in the detail of what has happened and what hasn't happened and who's happy and who's not happy uh, and, and forget that actually uh, the, the, the basic structures, the organisation is what uh, uh, the EU has wanted. And that matters because uh, we've talked about this before on uh, Adata Brussels that uh, the system of Article 50 is designed for the EU rather than for the UK, for the departing member state. It's about what the EU is prepared to give rather than about what the departing member state uh, pick and mixes from uh, a menu of options. Now, having said that, the Commission uh, and the European Council have taken the view that they are pretty flexible about what uh, is on offer, that they wish to preserve the integrity of the uh, European Union post-Brexit, Uh, They want to make sure that there isn't a compromising of their regulatory uh, arrangements, that membership is worth something to members, so uh, membership has to be more valuable than non-membership. But beyond that, if the UK wants a close relationship, then they're very happy for it to have that close relationship. If uh, it wants a more distant relationship, then they can work with that too. If you read the position papers, then you'll see that uh, it's framed very much as, well, you know, here are the different kind of range of things that you can do. That if you want to do this, then you're implicating yourself in that. If you want to do uh, something else, then these are the consequences. And these are the kind of the issues that you will have to uh, address because these are the, the various ways that elements interlink. Now, clearly, uh, the Commission certainly, and most member states would like to keep a close relationship with the UK. They want to keep 
the links, um, but uh, they uh, respect the results. You know, actually, most member states would be perfectly happy if the UK turned around and just said we're we're not doing this. But in the respect of that uh, referendum result last summer, member states will kind of work to what the UK wants. And this really has been the, the, the big problem of Article 50 so far, which is that the UK still isn't clear about what it does want. Rather than working from kind of a core principle of you know, integrity of the regulatory system in the way that the EU has, it's got a, a whole series of uh, smaller positional red lines that don't really work together. So on the one hand, you have people like Theresa May saying that they don't want to be part of a customs union or the single market, that they don't want ECJ uh, activity uh, in the UK uh, past uh, the end of membership. But at the same time, they talk about having the, the, the most frictionless of borders, uh, frictionless trade. They want to make sure that uh, they uh, avoid uh, any kind of uh, constraints on what uh, takes place. They say that they don't want to be part of uh, the EU treaties, but at the same time, they want to be uh, setting up a whole new structure of defence and security cooperation, which would basically replicate the, the existing treaty framework. And from the EU's perspective, certainly, it does look very often like a, a cakeist position, uh, having your cake and eating it too. That uh, the UK seems to be struggling with how it balances rights and obligations in the relationship that it's looking for. And particularly, what there isn't in the British debate is a clear agreement or even a particular discussion about what a post-Brexit Britain looks like, what kind of society it wants to be, what its role in the world might be, which might then tell us what uh, an appropriate relationship with the EU is. Now, with that in mind, uh, the progress on negotiations so far has been mixed. Um, at the uh, press conference at the end of round four, which was yesterday, uh, David Davis said there'd been lots of progress. Michel Barnier said that there had been uh, not sufficient progress, which is the key phrase, because sufficient progress is what's needed on the first round of issues uh, in order to move on to the second now, uh, let's maybe just think about those uh, issues and, and the structure of the debate. At the moment, what we're in is phase one of negotiations. So this is, if you like, the, the tidying up uh, of uh, the immediate uh, outstanding issues. And the Commission uh, and the European Council uh, agreed that there were four areas, three big ones and then other. So the big three are citizens' rights, financial liabilities and the uh, border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And it's worth just saying a little bit about each of those three areas uh, and about the other as well. On citizens' rights, we the feeling at the beginning of the process was this was probably the easiest of the three areas, that both sides were very clear that they were committed to try and preserve citizens' rights of EU citizens in the UK, UK citizens in the EU. A lot of uh, fine words were uh, 
shared uh, on both sides um, and everyone had high hopes that this would be a, an easy early win and would set the tone for the rest of the negotiations. Uh, unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened, which was that the, the difficult progress on citizens' rights has uh, really characterised uh, the difficult progress on everything else. So whilst there has been a lot of area of agreement, and there are very helpful summary documents on the uh, Task Force 50 uh, website of the Commission, which provides a summary of where we are, there are still some big issues. And the, the biggest issue remains the the court arrangement for uh, the protection of rights. The UK's position is that it doesn't see why the ECJ should have any role in protecting uh, EU citizens' rights in the UK, given that the UK will no longer be part of the EU. Um, the EU's position is that these are EU rights and that therefore it's appropriate that an EU court should uh, have uh, final uh, determination over that. Uh, the meaning of those rights, uh, not least because of consistency issues. So if you're trying to keep it the same for EU citizens in the UK as in the EU, then you need to have a, a single arbiter. Now, that process has not really moved on very far. There's some agreement that you need to, to find some kind of solution. The UK has said that the British courts will uh, be able to directly interpret uh, and uphold the, the rights in any final agreement, which is a, a step forward, but there is a, a concern still about final arbitration. Now, the logical kind of solution is some kind of joint uh, panel between UK and EU judges, uh, but uh, ECJ tends to be a bit unhappy about those kinds of bodies because uh, it worries that it might infringe on its uh, its own freedom of manoeuvre. So we're kind of left on citizens' rights with uncertainty. Uh, and certainly one of the, the key societal uh, dimensions of uh, this process has been that EU citizens in the UK, UK citizens in the EU, have actually become a lot more mobilised and active and vocal in uh, their desire not to be uh, treated as bargaining chips. Now, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, they are being treated as bargaining chips for the simple reason that the two sides don't agree and there are other issues of principle beyond citizens' rights per se that are implicated here. Because if you can see ground on ECJ uh, jurisdiction uh, and just disability, then uh, that has wider implications for the rest of the relationship. But for those, all those problems, you have seen a substantial amount of uh, technical work that has uh, advanced things as uh, we move on. On the second area, which is financial liabilities, we have perhaps um, a more uh, uncertain picture. Until last week, uh, we had basically no agreement on finances that the EU had made a very long list of things that it thought the UK should be paying for. Um, and uh, the UK was going through literally line by line saying, what's your legal basis for this? How can you justify that? Over time, you've had a, a kind of a, a softening of the British position, that there was an understanding fairly soon that there was uh, a moral obligation, even if there wasn't a legal obligation to pay money. Um, 
the, the hard British position was that once the UK leaves the EU, it has no liabilities, financially speaking, that if it was in the club, it should pay. If it's out of the club, it shouldn't pay. Um, and there have been assorted legal uh, opinions uh, to that effect. But politically, uh, morally, certainly you can make an argument that there should be money that uh, is paid, that there have been commitments that have been entered into, um, that there are long-run uh, costs that uh, the UK would seem to be on the, the hook for in a, in a kind of a commonsensical way. Uh, the most obvious example, and one that's been in the press recently, has been about pensions for uh, UK nationals uh, working in the institutions. Um, should the EU pay for those people? Should the UK pay for those people? Should the UK pay just its ongoing percentage of the contribution to the pensions pot? Um, and whilst that might seem a somewhat esoteric issue in the, the context of things, we're still talking about several billions of euros over potentially uh, many decades uh, of uh, people's lives. Um, if you imagine that you have a very young person who's just started working in the, the commission uh, and then has to leave in 2019, they might well still be alive in uh, 100 years' time. The big concession on money, though, was in Theresa May's uh, Florence speech last week, where she uh, said that the UK would honour its commitments entered into during membership. Now, that's a slightly obtuse phrase, and one that uh, has been the, the source of much discussion in the past uh, round of discussions, uh, of negotiations. Um, in essence, it's understood that this is a commitment to pay uh, the UK share of uh, budgetary contributions under the current uh, uh, multi-annual financial framework, which runs to the end of 2020. So uh, a year and a half or more beyond the end of membership. Now, uh, it's actually even longer than that because the current financial framework, which covers a, a seven-year period, this is a key financial planning framework for the EU, it includes commitments that run for many years beyond 2020. So the, the, the UK potentially is saying, well, we'll, we'll honour our commitments uh, which uh, have been entered into at this point. Now, that makes life a lot easier for uh, the EU. It means that it doesn't have to be a, re, a major rejigging of uh, the period to 2020, which was a big concern amongst member states who were starting to get jittery uh, about that. It means that uh, there is the removal of a roadblock, but it doesn't really address uh, all of the financial questions, either the long-run uh, non-framework uh, 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 elements, so that would include things like the pensions and other kind of liabilities and commitments. Uh, it doesn't address what the... Uh, ongoing payments to the EU might be for participation in other programs such as research or uh, in development or uh, other kinds of areas that the, the UK has said that it wants to maintain uh, a relationship with the EU on. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty still about the financial uh, side of things. There is also uh, a sense, particularly on the British side, that the money can't really be dided up until the very end of this process because until you know what you're working towards, 
it doesn't make sense to, to do the money. So in that view, and one that I think is a correct one, the money is a political object. You know, it, yes, it is a lot of money, but the money doesn't matter so much for the, the volume, so much as the optics and the political message that it sends out. And political messages then conveniently lead us on to the third key area of this phase of negotiations, namely the Irish border. Now, this is proving the most intractable of the three main areas. There is, again, a lot of concern uh, in the rhetoric of uh, both sides that this is a delicate situation. But that doesn't translate yet into a clear plan of action. The issues I think you will be familiar with, namely that you have a set of incompatible or seemingly incompatible demands. On the one hand, you've got the Good Friday Agreement and the cross and travel area, which means that there is commitment by the UK and Ireland not to have any border between the North and the South. On the second hand, you've got the territorial integrity of the UK, which suggests that you can't have a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And on the third hand, you've got the uh, integrity of the EU single market, uh, which we've talked about already, which suggests that you can't put a border between uh, the British Isles, including the Republic, and the EU 26. So... Uh, this is, uh, again, tied in with the other elements that we've already mentioned, that uh, the expressed desire of the UK to be outside of a customs union particularly would seem to require that there is a system of customs checks that takes place uh, at some point uh, in or around the, the border region. Uh, but there's no sense of how you might do that. Uh, there's no understanding of how you might handle the uh, free movement of people as uh, it currently exists. And uh, the concern of the Irish uh, throughout the past two years uh, has translated into the Commission taking a very determined line that the Good Friday Agreement is unalterable. It not just simply should be respected, but is unalterable and is the ground rock of... Uh, Anglo-Irish relations um, means that there's really a, a lack of clarity about uh, what to do. Everyone talks about the need for creative solutions, um, particularly on the British side, but there have been no solutions coming forward. Now, I've sometimes said in talks when I've talked about this, the whole area has very much the feel of Everyone's waiting for the clever intern in the foreign ministry somewhere to come up with a bright idea and, and save the day. Now, uh, at the moment, that clever intern has not yet turned up or has got lost in a corridor somewhere um, uh, because there are no plans on the table. And we've seen that even yesterday that uh, there is talk about various options, but nothing that actually looks like a particularly coherent plan. Where we are with that issue, though, is that the Commission has said very clearly that it is for the UK to propose uh, solutions. It's not for the EU or islands to do that. It's for the UK to say how they're going to square that particular circle. 
And uh, at the moment, uh, there's no sense that that is going to move very quickly. So what we've got are three key issues uh, and a bundle of other stuff, including ongoing uh, contracts, uh, legal cases, uh, court cases, uh, issues around uh, the, the role of the ECJ, uh, a whole number of things that have been going on. But the broad picture is that whilst there has been some progress, there is not really enough progress uh, in these talks. And that matters because uh, next month, uh, a European Council in the middle of October, there's supposed to be a decision and determination about whether uh, to open phase two of negotiations. And that requires, under the uh, mandate that the Commission has, for sufficient progress to be made. And at the moment, there is no realistic way that that will take place. For all the uh, improvement in the uh, ambiance and the general kind of representation uh, in this last round, uh, Michel Barnier was clear that this would take some time to make sufficient progress. So the anticipation is that uh, that move to phase two now probably can't take place until the December European Council uh, at the earliest. Now, what's phase two? Well, phase two is talking about uh, talks, largely. It's transitional arrangements. The idea here is that you would, once you've tidied up the immediate uh, liabilities and issues that we've just talked about, you can then start talking about the structure for talking about uh, the new relationship that you're setting up. So that involves two elements. It's, first of all, what are the immediate post-membership uh, uh, situation looks like, uh, and I'll call it a transition, even though at the moment we don't know what it's a transition to. And it's also about setting up a framework for the talks to set up uh, a new treaty, a further negotiation, which will uh, institutionalise the, the new relationship between the EU and the UK. Now, this has been contentious because the UK has said it's hard to talk about the immediate issues because uh, it needs to talk about the transitional issues and you can't really separate the two. And there's kind of a point to that. Um, the EU's view has been always that uh, it needs to sort out the immediate issues because if it doesn't sort out the immediate issues, there is a risk that those get lost in the wash and uh, this is their best opportunity to uh, get commitments from the UK. We're seeing a slight softening of this, that both sides kind of recognise the other's uh, position and, and approach, and the Commission in particular has been a bit more sympathetic about maybe opening things up. So one thing we might see in October is some movement uh, by the European Council in the mandate to let the Commission start to talk about transition insofar as it relates to those, transitional, uh, those phase one uh, topics that we've discussed but uh, that's far from certain at the moment. For their part, the UK has, in the past six months, moved to a position where it recognises in government that a transition is necessary, that you can't resolve everything in the two-year period of Article 50, uh, and so we need to have a period where uh, we don't move to a final state, uh, but rather we have something that looks, well probably, and nobody's really saying it, but this is the implication, 
pretty much like membership that you you take the UK out of the institutions that you don't give them a vote but pretty much everything else stays in place and that lets everyone avoid the cliff edge that has been so uh, well publicized uh, in March 2019 uh, but uh, also provides some kind of certainty. Now the trade-off for the UK is that yes you can have a, a transition period but they've wanted to keep it relatively short, relatively well defined so that uh, businesses and politicians and indeed voters, importantly, know that this is not a uh, dumping ground for the whole discussion. It's not going to be one of those famous EU transitional states that then lasts for several decades. So uh, May, in her Florence speech, this is her big concession, was having a transition period ideally of around two years, which she said was the time necessary to put in place a new immigration system uh, and architecture, but with some flexibility about being longer. Now, if we were being ungenerous, uh, we might look at the record of the British government in major IT and procurement exercises and wonder whether two years actually really was enough. Um, and certainly we might also look at the EU and their track record of negotiating uh, agreements with third countries, which the UK would become, of course, once it left, uh, where even the most uh, or most seemingly modest of uh, agreements can take many years to uh, negotiate and then to ratify. So transition matters because if you uh, don't get that in place during Article 50, then you will end up with a, a real uh, problem in terms of not knowing what uh, comes next. And this, I think, has been the, the other key story of the past six months. The UK has moved away from saying no deal is better than a bad deal. That you, you find that sometimes still on the back benches, but it remains now uh, vanishingly rare on the front benches that uh, there is a growing awareness in Westminster and Whitehall that uh, the UK would neither benefit nor is well positioned for leaving in March 2019 without an agreement. So it's part of the seriousness that has come through in the last couple of weeks of this six-month period that we can't keep on messing about, that actually there is a profound need for that. Now to take one obvious example, if we go back to Northern Ireland, if the UK left without a deal in March 2019, you would have an immediate need to implement customs checks, security checks. Um, but there is nobody to do that. There is no equipment to do it, either in a technical way, nor the man uh, power to uh, actually run these, uh, these systems. So even if the UK government went on a crash procurement program, it's almost impossible to imagine that they'd have anything in place for a no-deal scenario in March 2019. So purely in capacity terms, the UK is not ready for uh, leaving without uh, a deal, which increases the need for it to find a deal. Uh, and again, because everyone needs to agree, that increases the scope for the UK or the EU to basically say this is what's on offer. And maybe this is a kind of a wrapping up point. As much as the EU is in control of Article 50, it has tried not to be uh, too um, haughty about the whole thing. 
it could very easily have gone down the path of saying, well, this is what's on the table, you like it or lump it, uh, and assume that the UK would come round because it would know which side its uh, bread was buttered on. Instead, actually, the Commission has been really quite accommodating. Uh, in many ways, Michel Barnier is the UK's best friend, that uh, the sense one gets from talking to officials uh, around uh, the EU and, and indeed in the UK is that article, uh, the Article 50 process is being treated by the Commission as an opportunity to find a deal with the UK rather than as a punishment that uh, the Task Force 50 team are universally committed to actually trying to find a viable solution, um, which is often not appreciated, particularly in the British press. But uh, again, the, the costs for no deal are becoming ever more anxiety-inducing, not least because it's so hard to describe what they might look like. Uh, but even in the less lurid scenarios, there is a huge scope for uh, problems. So to wrap up this uh, episode, this review of the, the past six months, we start thinking about the next six months. These next six months are going to be the critical ones. If the UK and the EU can't resolve phase one issues uh, in the next six months, by next March, then we are very much likely heading for a no-deal scenario. Uh, yes, there has been recent mo movements on issues, but time is very short. Recall that uh, whilst we've got until March 2019, we also need to ratify an agreement, which means in practice that everyone's working to October 2018, uh, so one year away, for uh, actually reaching a deal to give time for all the bodies involved to make the necessary ratifications. Already that is a very tight schedule and if we're now about to lose two months because of delays on phase one that makes things commensurately more difficult. So again uh, this next three months is, the, is uh, six months is really the critical one because it's the time at which you need to see substantial movement on the EU side, there's a question about uh, whether they are going to become more difficult, less unified, and their, their degree of unity so far has been uh, hugely impressive and uh, largely unprecedented uh, in European negotiations with uh, third parties. On the UK side, the real question is going to be what happens to Theresa May. Can she get through the party conference next week? Can she avoid a leadership challenge? Can she manage the uh, divisions within the cabinet, which uh, seethe around her at various points? Because as much as she is not in a possession of a plan, uh, from the EU perspective, the last thing they want is to lose another uh, couple of months to a leadership election in the Tory party, possibly followed by another couple of months lost to a general election. So... Uh, in an age of profound uncertainty, it's better to stick with what you know from the EU perspective. And I think their view is they prefer to stick with Theresa May for all of her problems and her faults, rather than trying to uh, work out a new deal with a new leadership and potentially a new government. So plenty to watch out for, and we'll be doing more episodes as we go along.